Uh, the summer vibes are real this morning, aren't they? A little warm down here, and uh, we are one church in different locations, and, uh, and I, was, I was leaving this morning to go to NDG uh, and preach there. I saw some of our neighbors carrying kayaks down to uh, the, the river. I'm like, oh, that, that looks like fun. <laughs> like, oh, we could be kayaking. And then it was almost as instantaneous as having that thought that I said, Wow, we get the privilege, for those who are followers of Jesus, we get to be together. And this is really like an earthly manifestation of a heavenly reality. That people in heaven are all around Jesus, excited about him, worshiping him, desiring him, all together. And we get to do the same thing here this morning. And so what a great privilege it is. Um, and I, I'm really excited. So we're in the book of Mark. We're in Mark chapter 5. We've been going through Mark for a while. Mark's a book in the New Testament. And uh, really the account of Peter, uh, who is one of Jesus' uh, close disciples. And Mark is writing this, uh, hearing from Peter and, and dictating for us. So I'm going to pray again, and then we will get going in Mark chapter 5. Jesus, thank you that you are a great God. Time with you, though... though Watching people go, go in kayaks and sailboats and sea dews, uh, that's, that's incredible. And that's, that's fun and enjoying your creation. And, but yet the reality that we can be together again. I remember sitting in my living room uh, watching people on screens wishing that we could be together. Longing for the day that we could be together again. And, and we get to do that today. And so we thank you. And we ask that you would work, that you would work in our hearts that this wouldn't be a mere information dump, that we wouldn't just learn new things, but rather you would change us. And so we look forward to what you're going to do today, and we love you and need you. Amen. All right, so everything is impossible until it's not. Everything is impossible until it's not. And so last week, I was preaching in other places. I think it was Jordan that was here. And so he preached on the end of Mark chapter 4. And it was Jesus and his disciples. And they were caught in this impossible storm. This storm that there seemed to be no way out of. And they thought that they had arrived at, at their death, basically. And yet Jesus speaks and calms the wind and calms the waves. And, and that's just a whole other you know, lesson of itself and, and wildness. But Jesus does that, and they get through the storm, and they get to the other side. And then, like, now we arrive into Mark chapter 5, and these three impossible situations, right? Jesus meets these three individuals that basically have their own storms going on around them, their own stormy situations. And so what we're going to do is we're going to see the kingdom of God, which Jesus came to speak about, that he was here as king to rule and reign. That's the kingdom of God, the presence of Jesus. And so Jesus is, is here to bring his kingdom. And we're going to see uh, what that looks like when his kingdom comes into conflict with the kingdom of this world. And, and if you're like, what's the kingdom of this world? We'll get to that in a little bit. But my hope, my hope is that what God would do in our hearts this morning is that he would remove limits that maybe we've made. That he would remove some of the scaffolding that we've put up around, uh, around our hearts and around our beings to protect ourselves and praying that he would remove those and that he would enlarge our vision of him and that we would carry on in worship. And maybe you would become a worshiper of Jesus for the first time. Maybe you would worship him for the first time today. And I remember what that was like. Remember what that was like. Yeah, it was 22. So that was 18 years ago. Long time. You do the math. 
but I remember what it was like to become a worshiper of Jesus and how profound that was and how to experience and come into relationship with this one that I finally knew I was made for, the one that I had rebelled against my entire life, knowing that he was really there and yet choosing to to push him away because I didn't want to submit to him. And yet when I met him, I found the utmost joy. No, not everything, nothing, uh, not all the stars aligned in that moment, not everything became perfect, but yet I, I found real joy and meaning and value and purpose. And my hope is that as we explore this this morning, that your heart would burst with joy, that this would be a worshipful experience, that, that King Jesus, it would be like he was really here and that you would get to experience him. So we're in uh, Mark 5, uh, verse 1. Hey, guys in the back. Perfect. Uh, Mark 5, verse 1. Um, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. They came to the other side of the sea. So Jesus brings them across the sea. Finally, he promised that he would through the storm. They get to this, this country. And, and this country is, is the country of the Gentiles. Now, for us, that, that might not be a big deal. Um, but in this day, it was. So they saw the world as Jew or Gentile. Either you were Jewish or you weren't. That was how these guys saw the world. And so this would have been like a secret trip for Jesus. Jesus wouldn't have highlighted that he was going to the Gentiles because the people of Israel would have been furious that he was doing that. It would have caused more misunderstanding to enter in. But yet what we get to see about Jesus is that he doesn't just care about the Jewish people, but he cares about all the nations. He cares about everyone. So if you're not Jewish and you're here today, you can know that Jesus came for you, that Jesus also loves you, that Jesus was pursuing you. And so as we get into Mark uh, 5, verse 2, it says, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. This is not necessarily what you want to happen on your destination vacation. So Jesus' boat pulls up on shore and out of the tomb. So this isn't like a a graveyard, like tombs dug down into the ground, but rather it would have been caves. And so as Jesus pulls his, his boat ashore, out of this cave comes running this man that is that is possessed by something completely other. Now, I don't know if you've had anyone running at you as, as fast as they can. I, I played football. I was a little guy, but I still like to hit people. And I remember I loved running backs coming at me as fast as they could because I was going to take them out at the ankles, right? And so when Jesus is standing there and this guy is coming out at him with, with all he can, Jesus is not looking for a way a, away from this or around it. Jesus stands. He stands firm. And what we're going to see is, is the power of, of Satan on full display. We're going to get to see the power of Satan on full display. So let me read to you verse 3 to 5 about this man. He lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So processing through this text all all week, um, I I saw something about this text that I had never seen before. 
that what we're getting to see is, is a picture of a false resurrection. What we're getting to see is that Satan is showcasing his power to animate, to control, to, in a sense, bring someone out of the tomb and show what life is like under his rule in his reign. And here's what life is like under his rule in his reign. It's destructive. This guy, maybe he was a dad. Maybe he was married. Definitely was a son. He was pulled away and out of his family to live in a graveyard, basically. Now, how many of you, when you were little, it's like, well, what do you want to do when you grow up? I want to live in a graveyard. Well, that's good, Johnny. And what about you, right? It's like, no, no, no one comes up with that. No one wants to live in a graveyard away from other people. And yet this had become his reality. And we don't know how this started. All we know is that he was there and this was his life. He lives alone with the dead. Imagine returning home after work, whatever work you do, and it's bones. This is your life. And not only that, but the pain was so deep inside of this man that he would self-harm, he would self-inflict, cut himself, basically, day and night, just meaning continuously, which was showing us that the pain was constant, was never going away, and he could never be relieved from it. I don't know if you've ever had a pain like that for a short amount of time, but it is unbearable, and you just want relief, and this guy could not find relief. And when we see this false resurrection happen, you know, Satan probably could have led this guy to just take his own life, but he doesn't do that, does he? He leads him to self-torture day after day after day, and in essence, What the enemy wants to do is he wants to remove the fact that this man was made in the image of God. He wants to scrub that away from him. For him to be seen as as the problem and by his problems, to be seen for the fact that he breaks chains, right? Oh, that's a guy who breaks chains, chain breaker, whatever. But it would have been so easy to identify this guy by his problem or his illness or his possession, but Jesus doesn't do that. Mark actually says a man with an unclean spirit steps forward that Jesus sees beyond what's going on in the guy. He sees the man, that Jesus doesn't view you for your problems. He views you as a man, woman, boy, or girl intricately made by him intentionally to enjoy him. And it doesn't matter what problems are at work in you or around you. There's nothing so great that he's going to be deterred to be like, ah, this is too great of someone coming at me. I got to get back in the boat and go to the other side. Jesus waits for you to run at him with all your issues and he's ready to embrace you. This is what we see in this account. Torture and desecrating is what Satan wants to do in this man, but look at what happens when the kingdom of God comes. In verse six and seven, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran, fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. So a few things. One, this man comes flying out of the tomb, and he falls prostrate at the feet of Jesus. I read a bunch of commentaries to try and figure out, was this the man or was this a demon that was doing this and leading this man to do it? And no one has any idea. They're like, we, we don't know. But the reality is, is that 
in this situation, both the man and the demon are coming to Jesus for mercy. Do you realize this? The kingdom of the enemy of God is still coming to God for mercy. Pleading, please don't send us away. If it's a demon speaking, please don't torment us and send us away. If it's a man coming, he's saying, I need help. But the demons know Jesus. They were made by Jesus. Long story, but Jesus didn't make them as demons, right? They chose to rebel against him. But the demons come up, and I, and I love this picture. They come up and they say, we know you. We know you, Jesus. You son of the most high God. And then Jesus says, well, who are you? Like, my fame is spreading everywhere, but who are you? You're stuck in a tomb. You're stuck out here in a graveyard. My fame is taking over the world, and you're trying to keep power of one man. Right? You're a joke. It's this power of Jesus. He's, he's flaunting in this moment. He says, well, what's your name? Go ahead. Tell me your name, big guy. Tell me your name, demons. Well, we're legion. You know, we're, there's many of us here. Like, we're tough. But then they say, but, but please don't hurt us. We're really tough, but, but please don't hurt us. Don't send us away. Don't torment us. They're asking for Jesus not to do the same thing that they've been doing to this man for years and years and years probably. Don't torment us. You see, the demons know their position. They know that they have to submit to Jesus. They know that they don't have ultimate sovereignty and control. And Jesus tells them, he says, come out of the man, in verse 8. Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. He tells them to get out. And they surrender, but they ask for um, some conditions of surrender. Okay, okay, yeah, we'll get out for sure. But can you please let us stay in the country? We really love the beaches here. It's wonderful. Um, And would you please let us go into those pigs over there? Don't just send us nowhere, right? Let us have a host. And Jesus actually permits this. And so the text tells us, which Stephen read for us, that a herd of swine of about 2,000, all of a sudden when these demons left this man, entered into these, these pigs, and they went down and they were drowned in the sea. Now if you see swine, I don't know what swine in their right mind would be. Like what do pigs in their right mind, like bacon, like that's what I say, like bacon is pigs in their right mind going into my belly. But pigs in their right mind all of a sudden are animated by what was once in this man and it causes them to destroy themselves and they rush down into the sea. And so this text is showing us the power, like there's real power of the kingdom that's against the kingdom of God. It's, it's evidenced. And this power was in the man, but the greater power when it comes to town is able to release people from that power. That's a secondary power. That the power that Jesus is moving with is far greater. And it's shocking how powerful Jesus really is. There's this story in the, in the Old Testament about the people of God being freed from slavery. So Israel was slaves and uh, God freed them and brought them out of Egypt and brings them into the land that he wanted to bring them through. But one of the obstacles was uh, this, this Red Sea. And they had to go through this Red Sea. There was no way around it. They had to go through it. You know the kid's book. And Jesus actually, um, God separates the sea for them to be able to walk on, walk through. So they get through the sea and they end up on the, the other side of the land. 
And then the, the enemies say, well, if we, they can go through, we'll go through. So they go through to pursue. And what does God do? He brings the waters back down on them and he destroys their enemies. And in a sense, this, this is reminding us of that. That the enemies of God will always be destroyed. The enemies of God will always be destroyed. That Jesus will always come after his people to care for them. And this is where we pause. Because sometimes we can just feel like, oh, I'm in a religious service. Oh, I'm in a, I'm in a lecture. Oh, I'm sitting under a sermon. But we do this so that we can see more clearly who Jesus really is. This is our God. This is our God. This is the God that these things should, should catch our hearts up in worship of him. That he is able to overcome these demons, armies of demons. And if he can overcome armies of demons, then he can free you from absolutely anything. Anything. I don't know how bad you think you have it, but I don't know if you've ever rolled with 2,000 demons deep in you. And if Jesus can free this man, then he can free you from anything. So I ask you this morning, and don't, let's not listen to this in a condemning way like, oh yeah, I need to feel bad about this. No, no, no. We want to focus on Jesus today. But is there anything that's controlling you? Like I hear the little baby, right? I love babies. I love them. But babies are controlled by a few things. And one of them is hunger. And if they are not fed, what happens? They lose their minds. They don't just cry. They're like shaking, you know, and it's like the silent cry, right? But is there anything that's controlling you? Is there anything that's controlling you? It's in the driver's seat of your life, and you're like, man, I wish that I could kick this thing out. I wish that I could remove this. I think this text is is a beckon to come to him and fall at his feet and ask him to take it. Is there an addiction? Is there a a craving for approval? Is there a desire just to be comfortable and left alone? Is there, like, what is that thing that controls you, right? If this thing comes up, it's going to change everything in your schedule. And will you give that to him? Like this man was freed. Will you be freed this morning? And then the other side of this is what used to control you. If you're a follower of Jesus, what used to control you? What was your predominant thing that was guiding your life? How has Jesus freed you from that? Right? This is what we talk about in the church's testimonies. Where we stand up and we, and we talk or we testify, right? We talk about what Jesus has done. I used to be this way. I used to struggle with this, but Jesus is changing me, and this is what's happening in our life. This is what our city, our family, our friends that don't yet know Jesus want to know about. They don't want to know the the specific points of Christianity. Give me the tenets. Like, give me your statement of faith. They want to see how Jesus is moving in your life today, When things don't go well, how's Jesus coming through for you? When you're rejected, how is Jesus enough for you? When you actually have a lot and things are going really well, how's Jesus better than that? That's what they want to see. Does Jesus actually work? It's nice when you can look at it like a classic car in someone's garage. You're like, this is amazing. It's like, let's take it out. They're like, no, 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 this doesn't drive, right? There's no like engine in it right now. It's like a, it's an antique thing. I'm like, well, it's garbage, (laughs) like right? It's garbage. If you can't take it out and showcase this beauty, it doesn't work. And with Jesus, you can get in and it actually drives. And he works. 
And this is what the man is going to do. And we'll get to that in just a second. But all this destruction happens. And the pig herders, these guys, ladies, I don't know, people taking care of pigs, they were basically taking care of the economy of someone, right? That was someone's money that just drowned in the sea. And so they're like, uh, you know, we got to go back. Like GameStop just happened. Hedge funds just went down. We got to go back and talk to our people. So they go back and they, they tell the city and the country what was going on. They all come out and they see the pigs floating around. And then they see the man that they couldn't control sitting, clothed, his right mind, probably enjoying a meal with Jesus. And do you know what that evoked in them? Fear. Fear. If this guy comes to our town and destroys our economy like that, what else is he going to do? If he can come and talk to the people who are living in tombs and make them normal, what else is he going to do in this place? And instead of inviting him in for a conversation on maybe, maybe what's your plan for our city, Jesus? How can we make our city? Maybe swine wasn't the best investment. I don't know. Like, what do we do? How do we do this? They beg him to leave. They ask him to please get out of our region. And this shows why these demons said, please don't let us leave the country. Please let us stay here. They had a real foothold there. That was a place where they were able to flex. But Jesus actually gives in to them. He's like, okay, you want me to go? I'll leave. He leaves, but in a way he doesn't leave. Because listen to what he, he does in verse 18 to 20 with this man. Verse 18 of chapter 5 in Mark. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might be with him. Now, the demons begged Jesus, and Jesus said, sure, go ahead. Surely Jesus is going to say, okay, come on. Like 13 disciples, let's go. But he says in verse 19, he did not permit him. He didn't permit him. There are all kinds of reasons for that we can't get into. But he didn't permit him, but said to him, go home. Your home is no longer the caves. You no longer live with the dead. Go home to your friends. And tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis. Decapolis was an area of 10 cities. He began to proclaim in the 10 cities how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. So Jesus says, sure, I'll get in the boat and leave, but I'm sending, I'm sending a witness to you. And this witness is going to be powerful. And this witness is going to, to be so um, compelling that you're going to marvel not just at his transformation, but at the one who transformed him. And Jesus, will see him go back to this area in chapter 7 and 8. He's not done with this area yet. But this guy was so changed by Jesus that he went and shared about what Jesus had done. And this is really what we get to do. You know what Jesus is not looking for you to do is memorize a systematic theology, which is about yay big, and that you would go out in your neighborhood and be like, did you know about the doctrine of God? No, I did not. Let me tell you, point one, sub point one, blah, 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 right? 
that's not what he's looking for you to do. He's also not looking for you to go to some sort of apologetic training where you learn how to talk about Christianity and different worldviews and all these things and that you regurgitate thing, these things. He's looking for you to go and they're like, oh, but we have all these questions. You're like, yeah, I don't know all those questions, but I have been transformed and changed and here's how. That's what he wants you to do. And I, I can tell you the people that I've seen meet Jesus None of it has ever been around, this is just me personally, it's never been around subpoints of information. It's been around seeing people's lives transform that they can't believe that that person was transformed. I was part of a fraternity. My whole life was a party. And at age 22, I became a follower of Jesus. And I, I think that I experienced love for the first time, like real love, like actually caring about other people, not figuring out how I can use people for my benefit. And I went back to my fraternity house, and I started telling them, like, ah, I met Jesus. And they're like, whoa, like, we think you might have taken something that wasn't good. And I'm like, no, 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 I met Jesus. And I explained to them. And two of my fraternity brothers pulled me aside and uh, said, man, that's like, can we hear more? And over the next couple of weeks, they became followers of Jesus because they were looking for that. And they're like, your life was this way, and now it's this way. What happened? Like, just the other night, we were doing these things, and now you're like, I want to try and do those things, but I feel like I'm going to vomit, like, doing that. Like, I didn't put that nauseous piece in me. Like, it just showed up. Like, I don't want to do these things anymore. And that's what, that's what speaks to people. And that's what Jesus is asking you to do. Go and talk to people about how you've been transformed. And it's not these massive things. It's like, just in this area. What a privilege that is. So, that's the first encounter. So then Jesus gets back in the boat. He heads back to the other side of the sea. Surely Jesus is going to get a rest at some point. Nope. Verse 21. When Jesus crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and was beside the sea. Don't you love it when you get home and the paparazzi's there? No, it's never happened to me. I'm glad to get home and like my dog comes and he's happy, kids are happy, and then we chill. Anywhere Jesus rolls, there's always the crowd. Paparazzi with no camera. When, the, when Jesus crossed again, a great crowd gathered, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. What a fun word, throng. Don't get that word wrong, though. So a second encounter, another person falls before Jesus, right? We see the demoniac falling, now we see another man falling, but he's one of the religious leaders, and he comes to Jesus really needy. Now, Jesus had bumped up against the religious leaders at the time. They didn't really understand him, but this religious leader is getting who Jesus is. And he comes, and he says that death is knocking at the door of my daughter. Like, would you please come and lay hands on her? I have, I have faith to believe that you are the only one who can make sure that this is okay. And so Jesus says, sure, I'll go with you. But the thing about Jesus that I love, because I get distracted really easily too, is that Jesus gets distracted. And it's like, Jesus, this is a wrong time to get distracted. Like, little girl dying, you don't want to get distracted. And he does. Because Jesus always follows what the Spirit of God wants for him to be doing. So let's look at the third encounter that distracts Jesus away from the second encounter. All right, in verse 25. Now remember, they're going. And there was a woman, so a whole new character. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. 
Okay, woman's problem, you know what that is, 12 years nonstop. Sounds horrendous, I'm sure. And who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. But she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I even touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This woman, and she had tried everything. Let me just break down how, how much of a problem this is. Physically, she would have been anemic. She would have been very weak. She wouldn't have been able to do things for long periods of time. Socially and spiritually, she would have been isolated. She wouldn't have been able to go into the synagogue because technically, according to Jewish law, she was unclean. And any time that she would go out and there was a crowd around, she would have to say, unclean, unclean, and people would have to move away from her. She's all by herself, and this is very strange. So either her husband had died, he's not mentioned at all, and she has her own bank account that she's drained, or he's divorced her because of this issue, which wouldn't have been uncommon in that day. And so she's experiencing extreme isolation, right? Imagine, we, we can't be together during, we weren't able to be together during COVID. Imagine that that was going on forever, and you're continuously having to watch live stream because you just have to. You can't come and be with us at all. Like, we, we can't let you do that. The isolation, no one could be around her. And her finances were all gone. And she had gone to the experts, the doctors. And instead of, like, making her a little bit better, she actually was worse. So she was probably in, in real physical pain. And so she devised this Sneaky probably isn't the right word, but I like that word. She devised this sneaky, like shrewd plan of how to get better. She knew that, that getting to Jesus was going to heal her. She had heard. She hasn't been able to see because she can't be around it. And so she devises this plan to, to get to him. And here's the plan. She's unclean, so she can't run to him and openly be like, Jesus, come to me. So she's going to sneak up quietly through the crowd probably disguised so that no one can recognize her because they'd be like, ah, that's unclean Jane. Like, get unclean Jane out of here. Like, she's in the crowd. And she's going to go up, touch his garment, and in her mind, it's like, no one's going to know. It's all going to be good. And I'm going to be made better. And then I'll just go home, and I'll come out and be like, it's all, it's all done. Like, how much faith does it take to put together a plan like this? Risking more ostracization. That's a hard word this morning. Ostracization. There you go. I don't even know if it's a word. I just say it confidently and just throw it out there. But risking to be rejected further, risking to be recognized, like she was putting a lot on the line. She touches him, and what does she feel? She feels the healing actually take place. She knows the healing take place. And what does Jesus feel? He also feels that someone has been healed. And so what does he do? Remember, he's on the way to a dying little girl. And he stops everyone and he says, who touched me? That's like going through the jazz fest, being like, 
who touched me? It's like, Jesus, come on, man, like, look around. It's like, no, 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 who touched me? Who touched me? The woman, you see, wanted a cure, but Jesus wants an encounter. The woman just wants to be healed quietly and go back home, but Jesus, he wants to encounter her and for her to encounter him. And so when she recognizes that Jesus isn't going anywhere and she's going to be found out pretty quick, she comes up, falls before Jesus, and explains everything. And what does he say to her? Daughter. My daughter. Not you unclean woman. How could you come through this crowd and touch me? Now you made me unclean. Like, what a mess you are. My daughter. I am so glad you're here. I am so glad that you came to me. Right? He starts with this reality of spiritual healing, that you've been healed in such a way that I can talk to you as my daughter, that you understand me correctly. This crowd is all around me trying to figure out, am I going to get lunch today? Like, what's going to happen? What are you going to do? What tricks are you going to play? And you are pursuing me for what I came to do. You have faith in me correctly. So you are my daughter. I don't think she probably expected that. I think she expected to be laid into. But he affirms her and welcomes her into his family. Not only that, but he says, you're healed. Physically, you're healed. Spiritually, you're healed. And physically, you are healed. This is the fullness of the kingdom of God coming together. Not just spiritual healing, not just physical healing, but complete healing coming together. And when Jesus comes back... When Jesus brings his kingdom in fullness, because we exist in this place that we would say is the already, but not yet. That the kingdom of God has started, healing is possible, spiritual healing is possible, even physical healing is possible, but it's not yet here in all its fullness, but one day it is. And when that comes, everything is going to be made right. One day there'll be no more disease. One day there'll be no more sickness. One day there'll be no more uncleanness. One day there'll be no more isolation. It'll be all relationship with him. And how's this going to take place? Well, because Jesus went to the cross. And on the cross, as Jesus was there, he took our uncleanness on himself. And he allowed for his blood to flow for our forgiveness so that we could become clean and this woman's blood could dry up. This is the power of the cross. The cross isn't this neat little thing that we sing about and it's like, oh, it's an example of how much Jesus loves us. The only power to rescue and bring healing is the cross. That's it. That's it. And yet that's enough. And so let me ask this before we we go back to that, that second scenario and then we'll be done. How long have you been living with something? Have you been living with a certain sickness or a a disease or something like that? And you've just begun to say, oh, this is who I am. This is who I am. You define yourself by that. You make excuses for all of life because of that thing. And it might be very real. You might be holding it for 12 years like this woman did. But have you ever asked Jesus, hey, Jesus, could I just grab your garment and you take this from me? Could I, could I hold on to you and you remove this discharge of blood for 12 years? Could you remove this, this thing? Like, my wife has crazy, crazy food stuff. Like, she can barely eat anything without her body responding. And it's like, would you please just take that? Like, 
take that away. It causes so much isolation in many different ways. And it's like, would you just take that, please? Is there something like that in your life that you've never asked him because you're like, I don't want to bother Jesus. But Jesus wants to be bothered with this stuff. Jesus wants to have his, his, it wasn't really a shirt, but let's just say a shirt. He wants his shirt tugged on. He wants his garment pulled. Say, Jesus, would you, would you please look at this and would you take care of it and heal me? And even if he doesn't, he's not going to bail on you. He's not going to call you unclean and put you in quarantine away from him. He's going to walk with you and he'll say, my, my grace, my presence is enough for you in this thing of weakness that you're experiencing. I'm enough for you. Is the presence of Jesus enough for you and will you ask him to remove this thing? Now, let me end with this. So while Jesus is healing this woman, the little girl actually dies. So in verse 35 to 43, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, hey, don't fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, hey, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside. If you laugh at Jesus, you get put outside. And took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha, come I, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement and he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This guy comes up and says, hey, don't trouble Jesus. And Jesus says, no, 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 trouble me. Like, trouble me. I love being troubled with death. I love being troubled with your fears and concerns. Like, trouble me with those because I'm going to trouble your fears. And I want to replace your fears with faith. And so what Jesus does in this account is he walks into this proverbial tomb of a house where this little girl is dead. But the way that Jesus sees life is like, well, she's not dead. She's sleeping because of what I'm going to do. Do you have faith to believe that even, even when someone dies, that I can bring them back to life? Jesus walks into the tomb, and he doesn't, he doesn't come out with, like, the rage that the, that the demoniac does, like, oh, I'm powerful. Like, oh, look at what I can do. Look at how I can animate life. Jesus whispers into death and calls this girl back into existence. Hey, little girl, time to wake up. Right? It's like how we would wake up our daughters if they actually slept in the morning. We dream of doing that, right? Little, little girl, it's time to wake up. And she's, she does, and he's like, hey, she's been out for a while. Get her something to eat, right? Make sure you feed her. But there's these mourners that are there. They're professional mourners. And this is part of the culture, is that if someone dies, the mourners would be called, they would be brought in. And I think it's a brilliant idea. Once upon a time, I thought it was the dumbest thing, but now I think it's brilliant. Because for us as a society, we don't know how to mourn, do we? We don't know how to really grieve. We just want to like get past it. Like, how you doing? Hanging in there. Yeah, keep hanging in there, buddy. We don't like to talk about our stuff. And these mourners actually would come to your house and help you process grief and lament with you, and work through deep darkness, and help you see God in the midst of it. 
But these mourners, they, they laugh at Jesus. And thinking about this text, I'm like, man, I probably would be like a mourner. Jesus would probably walk in the house, and he's like, no, 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 she's sleeping. I'm like, Jesus, did you not take biology and anatomy? Like, do you not know how the human heart works? Like, that thing is done. We took a pulse, like, over. Game done. I've seen naps and death. She's dead. I would, I would maybe be tempted to laugh at Jesus. Like, you're, you're so silly. Why would you think this? And what does Jesus do? Well, we know he kicks him out, but Jesus walks into a hopeless situation and brings resurrection. It's hard for our minds to conceive of this, but there's no hopeless category for Jesus. That, that whole realm doesn't, doesn't work with him, which is quite phenomenal. We think of lots of things that are hopeless. And yet Jesus walks into them and brings life. So what areas do you laugh at God about? If God were to say, I, I want to speak hope into that situation, and you're like, <laughs> it's never going to happen. That would, that, that's crazy, Jesus. Like, that would never take place. There's a story in the Old Testament about a guy named Abraham and his wife, Sarah, and they were really old, 75, 65. Okay, really old to have a baby, not really old, okay? Let me clarify that. They were well-seasoned in life, but really old to have a baby. People aren't usually talking about retirement and family planning at the same time, right? And yet, there was this promise that was given to them that you're going to have a baby. And it's like, okay. But 24 years had gone by, still no baby. And God actually comes and says and reminds Abraham, hey, next year at this time, Sarah's going to be pregnant. And it's like 89 now. Like, this is getting more cuckoo. And, um, and he hears Sarah laugh, and he says, why is Sarah laughing? And then they actually address it with Sarah, and she's like, I didn't laugh, I didn't laugh. But she was mocking him. She was mocking what God was going to do. There's all kinds of areas that we would mock God in, in that reality. But do you know what God does? He doesn't say, fine, you're going to mock me? Then I'm going to have nothing to do with you. I'm revoking the promise I made you 24 years ago. No. What does he do? He brings that promise to completion the next year, and then he tells them to name their kid what? What's the name of the child of Abraham and Sarah? No. Isaac. What does Isaac mean? Laughter. Jesus says, I took your mocks at me, your mocking laughs, and I've made them laughters of joy. This is the redemptive power that Jesus and his kingdom rolls in, that he can take the mocking inside of you right now about certain situations where you would mock him. That Now, you wouldn't do it openly because you're too put together for that. But deep down inside, you're like, no, that's, that's never going to happen. There's no way that could ever happen. And he, and he can bring you into a place where, where you're laughing laughters of joy, like deep joy. And he doesn't say, well, because you didn't believe me, now you're going to sit out there. You're going to have to look in at the enjoyment that everyone is having. He says, no, I, I knew, I knew you're, you were mocking me. I'm going to bring you in to all of the joy of this. Now, God might not answer you right away. God might not answer your prayers right away, but he's on the way. He's on the way. He's, he's with you. He's with you in your mocking. He's with you in your unbelief. He's with you in your, in your doubts and your struggles. And he's not embarrassed to be called your God. 
Sometimes we would be embarrassed to describe parts of the Old Testament to our city, right? Like, oh, I don't want to talk about God in this way. But God is not embarrassed to call you his son or daughter to anyone in the city. They're mine. It's like, yeah, but they're a joke. Like, do you know what they did last night? Do you know what they've been struggling with? He's like, I know, and I'm going to make them just like my son Jesus. I love them so much. This is Jesus' posture toward his people. And so how do we apply this? My goodness, what a good God we have. Right, all week long, as, as I'm preparing this, I'm stopping and I'm like, like, you, you are more amazing. Like, it's hard to get words. You wish you could invent new words that God would be like, I will allow that word. But it's like, you are so much, la, la, la. Like, you're so much better than what I thought you were. You're so much kinder. You're so much more compassionate. You're so merciful. Like, how can I not tell people about this? Right? How can I not share about you changing these things or releasing these things or, or helping heal these things? How can we not do this? to a city that wants to be healed, that wants to find value, meaning, and purpose in anything other than Jesus, right? How do we show him? How do we show our city in a, in a humble way who Jesus is and what he's done? So let me apply this. Ask a few questions, and they're gonna be like awkwardly long pauses between these questions. But what's controlling you? What's controlling you? If it's not Jesus, then to say, well, Jesus, this thing's controlling me. Would you, would you take that? I don't want that anymore. And he will. Do you have a problem that you've just been living with and you've just said, this is always going to be there? Well, how long are you going to live with that problem? I don't even know what day it is. I know it's Sunday, but it's July something. But make July something be the day where you're like, no, I don't, I don't want this problem to define me anymore. Jesus would... Would you remove this problem? Would you take this problem away? Or would you help me see what, what you're doing in the midst of this problem? In what hopeless situation do you find yourself in right now? Where you're like, I can't see an end to this. I can't see the other side. And would you, would you allow for the cynicism and mocking laughs inside of you to, to be drowned by the love and compassion and care and intentionality of the Jesus who came to die and rise for you in your place. Let his hopefulness drown your hopelessness. In our city, this is such good news because Jesus is stronger and Jesus is waiting to be bothered by our city. Jesus is waiting for our city to cry out to him. And what's so, what's so incredible is that statement that I started with, I'll end with, is that everything is impossible until it isn't. Montreal has always been the least reached city in all of North America. Well, that's true until it's not. And we're praying that Montreal would become the most reached city. And do you know how it, that happens? By God's spirit coming and moving in the city and convincing us, like this man who is filled with all these demons, to go and tell the city of how the Lord has had mercy on you. What a great privilege. Let me pray and we'll respond. Uh, Jesus, thank you that you are alive and active and moving. Thank you that you are a good God. Thank you that we can trust you. 
I want to pray for those who are here that are full of cynicism, full of mocking, full of this. Would you please speak to their hearts right now and let them know that you're here and you're not going anywhere. That you're not, you're not repelled by those things. But rather those things seem to invite you in even more because you want to change those. I want to pray for people who don't yet know you, that they would turn to you this morning and say, Jesus, I need you to be my rescuer, and I want to follow you. And would you change them now? And help us to respond with full hearts this morning. Full hearts, full of the Spirit, excited, anticipating what you're going to do in us and through us for our good, our joy, and for the joy of the city. And may Montreal become the most reached city in the Western Hemisphere. May Montreal become the most joyful city because Jesus, you have visited the city in a significant way and people know how you have had mercy on them. So we love you and need you for all that. Amen.